Amen. This morning, we will be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can find this uh, passage on page 874 in the Pew Bible. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we have come into the new year, and that means we are returning to the book of Luke. Now, we read only the first 10 verses of chapter 15, but uh, chapter 15 is actually, as a whole, is a single unit. Um, these, uh, Jesus tells three parables here, and they are connected together, um, but we're just going to look at the first two, because basically the first two set up the runway for the plane of the, of the parable of the prodigal son that's going to land on it. Okay, so, that's, so basically we're clearing the runway this morning, and then next week we're going to land the plane uh, with uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and we'll talk about why that is not the correct name for the parable of that parable. So, uh, and, uh, but this, Luke 15 is one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible to churchgoers. And whenever we get into familiar chapters, we should always kind of go, uh, we're kind of entering into the danger zone, right? Because we enter the danger zone of going, I already know what this is. I already know what this is about. I don't really need to learn anything more about this. And, uh, and, and, you know, this is just the lost need to be found and God's happy when it happens. Like, that's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, but there is more to say here. And also, that is not Jesus's main point. Okay, so, uh, so we're going to be getting to that. Uh, um, but uh, the, these verses, again, are laying the context for what is essentially not just landing a plane, but kind of a hammer blow against the Pharisees. That he is speaking to. In or, now, in order to get a thorough understanding of what's going on, we're going to consider uh, first what a parable is. Refresh our understanding of this. We actually talked about what a par- what a parable is back in Luke chapter eight, uh, but that was a while ago. So, so we're going to refresh ourselves on what a parable is, why Jesus uses parables, 
and how these affect our understanding of the chapter, and then we'll apply all that to the first two parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And so, and we're spending time on this because we do struggle to understand parables. Now, I hesitate to say that because I don't want to communicate that parables are just super deep and only sharp biblical experts can tell you what it is. And you just don't even think about it until I explain it to you because I have the secret knowledge. That's not what I'm trying to communicate here. Um, uh, but, uh, but what do I mean? Well, let's start with the basics here, which is we're going to ask a couple of questions. The first is, what is a parable, right? Now, a parable, it a, it's a, literally means to throw alongside. <laughs> it comes from a Greek word, basically, to, to, uh, to throw uh, and, and to throw alongside, meaning it's something that is used alongside teaching to make, to, to, in order to communicate something. That's what, that's what a parable is. It is, uh, it is basically a non-literal story or proverb that is used to teach something. Part of the problem of defining a parable is that parable is a very vague term. So uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a very specific term for a very specific thing. It can be several things um, because, uh, you know, people ask, okay, well, a parable is a parable, an allegory um, where characters, places, and items represent certain realities or people. Um, so, for instance, like C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where Aslan represents Jesus and Edward is a repentant convert and the white witch is the devil. Is it like that? Sometimes. And to some degrees, right? Um, and so, but, but not always. And so parables, now, parables always have a lesson. Parables always have a central point. Parables can have multiple applications. But not every aspect of the story in the parable is meant to have an allegorical meaning. Like, for instance, the lamp that the woman used in searching for her coin, we're not meant to go, okay, well, lamp, what does the lamp represent? The lamp represents uh, the word of God because the word of God is uh, identified as by David in Psalm 119 as a lamp unto our feet. And so we use the word, we use the word of God to search for the lost coins. What do the coins represent? We're gonna, you know, it's kind of like going through that. That's not what you're supposed to do, okay? And to try to identify every single aspect. And so you have to be careful uh, not to go overboard. But there are aspects of parables that are allegorical. So we have to be, so we, it is there. So it just, it's complicated basically what I'm saying. Um, and uh, yes, but now we do use God's word uh, in order to search out the lost and to bless them. Uh, but that again is not Jesus's point. So, uh, so at the very least, Jesus, we know he's using parables. That means Jesus is trying to teach his audience something. He's trying to teach us something. That much we know, right? Now we ask the question, why did Christ teach in parables? Now, uh, two main reasons are given why um, Jesus uh, taught in parables. One is a modern suggestion. The other one is explicitly stated uh, in uh, Luke chapter 8 and other, as well as in, in other Gospels. Uh, the first reason that's a popular modern reason to say Jesus uses parables is that Jesus is a master communicator who prefers to use stories over propositional lectures. Uh, more is caught than taught, and so stories are a nice, accessible way for Jesus to teach complicated truths to an uneducated audience. In fact, it would be a lot better off, we would all be a lot better off if preachers would take more of a note from Jesus 
and his teaching in the Gospels. Now, there are two major problems with this. Uh, First, while it is true that Jesus often taught in parables, he did not do so exclusively. Uh, And so it doesn't mean that his non-parable teaching is somehow less effective uh, than his his parable teaching. Uh, Further, the apostles don't do this. The apostles don't use parables in their letters. They don't do it. And so, you know, as we read the New Testament letters, I don't think we're meant to conclude that uh, Paul and Peter rejected Jesus's far superior method of teaching, and thus their teaching is subpar. Uh, Secondly, the the idea that Jesus teaches with parables um, because they are the clearest way to reach people doesn't match up with what uh, is said in Luke 8 as to why Jesus uses parables, which there is a quote from the, the, the prophet Isaiah that the parables are used in part to conceal the secrets of the kingdom uh, so that people may see but not perceive, that they may hear and not understand. So um, now connected to this is the second reason that is suggested why parables are used, which is parables are used by Jesus as a form of judgment on unbelief. People arguing uh, from from the context of the prophet Isaiah say that Jesus preaches with parables as a form of judgment to unbelieving Israel. It's almost humorous that we have these two different reasons. Why does Jesus use parables? Because they're easy to understand and everybody can get them. And then the other reason is because no one understands them. (laughs) Right? These are the two reasons that are suggested as to why uh, why um, he uses them. So what is the answer? Well, uh, well, we've looked at this before back at uh, Luke chapter 8 when he was using the parable of the sower, and we highlighted that Jesus, Jesus uses parables to reveal and conceal uh, truths about the kingdom of God. This means that Jesus is essentially the decoder ring when it comes to his parables. He is the key to unlocking the meaning of the parables. Without faith in Jesus Christ, we can read his teaching. We can read his parables. We can memorize them all we want, but they will not do us any good. Because even if we read Jesus' explanation of the parables, that the explicit explanations that he gives from time to time, they will not do us any good. They will not benefit us. Because people today can read the Bible with no profit to themselves because they read it in unbelief. The scriptures read through unbelief harden and condemn. But scripture, the scriptures as we read them in faith uh, we open up that which is concealed. To put it plainly, Jesus' parables conceal the truth of the kingdom of God from unbelievers, but reveal it to his disciples. As Jesus says uh, to his disciples, are given the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so if you want to truly understand the teaching of Jesus, you must believe and trust in Jesus. For in him is the good news of the kingdom. So that gives us some general background on parables. But how do we understand these parables here? Well, consider our context. Look at verses 1 and 2 in the chapter. What's going on here? Luke tells us about two groups of people that, that are responding to Jesus. First, he says the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus to hear what he has to say. While the Pharisees, meanwhile, are criticizing Jesus because he receives 
tax collectors, and sinners. Del Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this passage, uh, notes that the very thing the Pharisees condemn and grumble about is the salvation of the church, that Jesus receives sinners. Jesus tells a series then in response to the Pharisees and their grumbling. He tells a series of three parables. Um, who, uh, and, and so remember the setting here is the Pharisees who are incensed that sinners are receiving grace. That they're being received by this rabbi. They did not understand what a wonderful thing was happening before their very eyes. In each of the parables, the first two we read, and then we'll look at the, par- the, the prodigal son next week, uh, we have stories about lost things in each of them. You have a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then when we get to the prodigal son, I'll actually argue not one lost son, but two lost sons. Further in the two parables, Jesus concludes the stories with the shepherd uh, and the woman are rejoicing with their friends and neighbors. Notice that. That's a consistency there. But in the third story, the prodigal sons, we'll see next week, uh, there is no ending to it. It stops with the older brother standing outside, refusing to rejoice in the recovery, the finding of his brother. One of the things the Bible loves to do is to do repetition, grammatically, thematically. It loves to do repeat, 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 and then, in order to get our attention, break the repetition. And so if you want a great example of this, you know, you just go read uh, you know, Genesis 5. So-and-so was born, they lived this many years, and then they died. Right? And then so-and-so was born, and they lived this many years, and then they died. And then you keep going, and then all of a sudden, and then, then you get to Enoch. Right? Enoch lived this many years, and then he was no more, for God had taken him. Well, whoa, what, what's going on here? He, didn't, he wasn't dying and buried with his fathers. Okay, so it's meant to get our attention, to repeat, repeat, repeat. Well, Jesus repeat, repeat. He repeats it, and then he breaks it. Okay, and so that, that is meant to highlight that. So we need to bear that in mind uh, when we come to our passage next week. But what that means is that in these first two parables, uh, Jesus is, is establishing principles. He's establishing the pattern. That in, the, that in the next story, in the third story, he will break. And so, and these are two stories that he gives us that teaches, teaches us about God, teaches us about the nature of redemption, and the joy when the redemption is experienced in others. So, what is Jesus teaching in these first two parables? Well, very simple. Jesus is teaching us how to rejoice with heaven. Jesus is teaching us how to rejoice with heaven. Uh, Heaven is used uh, by Jesus in one of the parables as kind of a summary term for God and the angelic beings. Basically, heaven itself is rejoicing when sinners repent. And so rather than focus on the two stories separately, we'll consider the the principles that we can draw from them together. And that's that, that each of these stories, when we take them together, what do we learn? Well, we learn, first of all, that God searches for his lost ones. God searches for his lost ones. The, the comparison that Jesus is clearly making here between the shepherd and the woman is to teach us what God is like. The diligent shepherd knows how many sheep he has. And when one has gone lost, the good shepherd seeks 
that sheep out diligently. The sheep that has wandered off, uh, perhaps is hard-headed uh, or has been scared off in a recent storm. Whatever the reason, the shepherd searches the sheep out and does not stop until he accomplishes his goal. Likewise, the woman who likely from the description is a poor woman, uh, she, uh, she, she certainly would treasure her 10 coins. And having, I mean, imagine if you woke up and you, and you checked your bank account and 10% of your money was suddenly missing. You would search diligently for it, wouldn't you? With some very f calm phone calls to the bank, I'm sure. But, uh, so having, uh, but, but she lost a coin through the cracks in the stone floor. In fact, it's interesting is that, uh, um, so in, in poor homes uh, of that time, uh, there were likely no windows. There were large uh, um, stones in, in the base, and there were large cracks in between them. That, and archaeologists actually will date when people lived in these homes by the pieces of pottery, the potsherds that, that fall into the cracks, and the coins that they can date that, that somebody did not find <laughs> when they were searching for them because they fell through the cracks. And so, uh, and so, and so we look... Uh, at the woman who lost this, this valuable treasure, and so she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she seeks it diligently. And, and so this matters because uh, the fact that this, in both parables, there is the seeking of that which is lost. And it's significant, especially since it's clearly God that he's talking about, because Pharisees were willing to accept that God would receive a penitent sinner if he came you know, groveling home on his hands and knees, but he would not seek him out. He would not go out and find him. But listen to the, what the Lord says in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will now, and keep in mind, Ezekiel writes in, uh, in the time of the exile, okay? And so, and so the end time, there's a lot of uncertainty about Israel's future. And here's what the Lord says in response. He says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is amongst uh, his sheep and that, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he says in verses 15 and 16, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And one wonders, the, you know, uh, this hopefully increases our understanding when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But this highlights the fact that God searches out for his lost ones. He doesn't wait for them to come find him. He goes and looking for them. Secondly, he brings them back. God brings back his lost ones. He doesn't fail in his search. He doesn't fail in his effort. He doesn't say, well, I went out to go bring them back, but they didn't want to come back. And so I didn't do that. In each case, we see the sheep and the coin are both recovered. Notice the passivity of the objects. The shepherd finds the sheep, and what does he do? He doesn't ask the sheep if he wants to come back. He doesn't try to coax it back. He takes that sheep and throws it on his shoulders, right, and crosses the legs around and, uh, and, and carries, carries him home. He says that's what God does. 
He finds us like a coin that slipped through the cracks. Most vividly, what is made clear in this passage is that God rejoices when his lost ones are found. Jesus says in verse 7, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Now this, this idea of the 99 who need no repentance could be understood in two ways. First, you could take it literally and, and say, hypothetically, let's imagine 99 perfect people who don't need repentance, who never sinned. Okay? Um, and, and in this sense, God, Jesus would be saying that God rejoices more in the repentance sinner than if there were truly 99 people who didn't need to repent. He rejoices more over a sinner who repents. Um, secondly, he could be firing a shot at the Pharisees, and I think there's a good case to be made here, who think God rejoices over them in their self-righteousness and would be incensed to find out that God actually rejoices over repentant sinners, not people who don't think they need to repent at all. Uh, so, but honestly, at the end of the day, whichever one you choose, the material point is that God rejoices, the angels rejoice, indeed heaven rejoices when sinners repent. That is what Jesus makes clear. That is what he repeats. And if God rejoices when sinners repent, then should we not learn to rejoice with him? Do we not like to say that as God's people that we ought to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates? Should we not then rejoice in that which God rejoices? Well, Jesus tells us that God loves to receive repentant sinners. I read a funny story about a woman named Edith this week in my preparation for this and uh, Edith, uh, for the majority of her life, didn't want anything to do with uh, church and, uh, or God or Christianity, uh, but she was also deeply unhappy. And so much later in life, she finally, uh, she finally, in her unhappiness, said, fine, I'll go look at a church. And so she goes and goes to a nearby church, and she walks in, and the pastor happened to be preaching on our very text that we are looking at this morning, and he was reading from the King James Version, and he was highlighting, and uh, verse, particularly verse 2, about how the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus and how the Pharisees didn't like it. But when he came to read uh, verse 2 in the King James, uh, what Edith heard was that Jesus, this man Jesus, received sinners and eateth with them. And it, and, it, and it got her. It broke through. So, and silly as that is, it, 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 that, was, that is the truth for Edith, but it is the truth for each of us. Jesus received sinners and Eric with them. Jesus received sinners and you with them. He searches, he searches diligently for us in the fields and crevices of sin and he brings us in he finds us when it seems as though we have slipped through the cracks and been forgotten and cannot be found and when we are brought in there is celebration in heaven 
I've told you all before, it's like, you know, I have this inborn sense of kind of like, okay, well, if I get in, then I'm just kind of, God's kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'll let you in, but just know, you know, you're getting in by the skin of your teeth. Just go sit in the back and don't make any trouble. And I'm like, I'm good, all right, that's fine with me. I'm good. It actually, I feel uncomfortable with Jesus' teaching here. To say that when I, as a sinner, am received by God, that there is joy in heaven. That is an amazing reality. Why should heaven rejoice because Eric is received in mercy and grace of God? Certainly nothing on my part that I've done. Certainly nothing that you have done. But you are cause in your, in your salvation. You are cause for rejoicing in heaven. It is personal to every Christian. Heaven rejoices over every believer, every one of us who is brought into the fold. Many forget this reality. It's a simple point, but it's a profound one. The Pharisees couldn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend it. And even when we've, when we've gotten into church for a while, we can kind of get into a, a false way of thinking, thinking that God delights in a kind of legalistic perfectionism. Or it's, or, or it's opposite, that God delights in sinners just as they are, even if the, word, the Bible says that they are condemned before him. But, but Jesus tells us that God rejoices in searching out, finding, and bringing to himself sinners, even notorious, wicked sinners like tax collectors, IRS agents, and even us. And that's when we get, you, you, you're getting the gospel when you think, God saved even me. That's when we're starting to get a sense of the wickedness of our sin and the magnitude of the mercy and goodness of God. Because as deep and as wicked as our sin is, so much greater is his grace. And God rejoices in bringing sinners like you and I to himself. He and we should learn to rejoice with him as he brings in other sinners. And there's that, me that mentality of Paul. Look, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Right? That's Paul's testimony. He said that's part of the reason that God saved me, was to show that you can't possibly be as wicked as Paul. And he got saved. And so you can too. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? Or when we sing Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, are we really singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a decent person like me? Or were you wretched, lost, and blind, as the song says? Did God find you in his grace in the cross of Jesus Christ? Let us rejoice in the grace that our God bestows upon us. Let us rejoice whenever and in whomever we see him working and reclaiming the lost unto himself. The joy of our own salvation, as we meditate upon it, as we revel in it, will kill our judgmental pride and will fuel our joy as God finds other sheep and other coins.
and heaven will rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this simple truth that we just want to almost want to blow past because it's almost embarrassing to think that heaven would rejoice over sinners like us being brought to repentance. And Lord, we don't take credit for repentance. We don't take credit for, for believing and trusting. We know that that is even a gift that you give to us, that you bestow upon us, that you call us into. And so we give you all the glory and honor and praise, and we pray, Father, that, that the heavenly joy would, would stir our joy and that we would rejoice in the salvation of others as we see them coming to faith. Father, may we indeed be overflowing with joy for the sake of Christ. May we be welcoming to other sinners that they may enter into the fold by your mercy and, good and goodness. We pray, Lord, indeed, bring them in. Bring them in from the fields of sin just as you brought us in. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.